Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of 91.7 KALW Local Innovative Public Radio for San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. And from that lovely oasis of thought, we migrate to this lovely oasis of the air and from the air to the internet via our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where, John, I've already posted a blog about meaning, music, and expression or something. Well, congratulations to you, Ken, and to music, meaning, and expression for the attention you've given it. Because today... Today, folks, you're used to us talking or bringing you information, bringing you the music of philosophy in the way that no other program ever has in the history of the world. But today we're going to talk about the philosophy of music, and Ken's going to explain that whole concept to us <laughs> in a few deft words right now. I, I'm going to explain that whole concept. No, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be puzzled about music because actually, I, you know, I love music. I used to play lots of music, and I still listen to tons of music, but I'm puzzled about it. There are lots of sounds in the world, lots of beautiful sounds, ugly sounds. The music is some subset of the sounds in the world. But I, I don't know how to pick out that subset. Well, I, can you help me? Yes, I can help you, uh, but not much because it is a, it is a baffling uh, topic. Everybody pretty much agrees that music is somehow organized sound. But that's at most, and at most, because, of course, some philosophers come up with an exception to everything. Speech is organized <laughs> yeah. sound. Yeah, it's at most a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition. Which organized sounds are music? People have thought, well, maybe music is essentially uh, there to uh, accompany speech, that is, singing. But that hasn't been true for a couple it centuries. It was true for a long time, though, was, right? Apparently. I mean, we really don't know a lot about the music of the Greeks. The only music we know about is that was, was usually connected with religion or something and gets written down or talked about. But we do know quite a bit about the music the last few centuries, and it definitely is a lot of instrumental music and a lot of music whose point is clearly not to accompany speech, nor it seems to represent anything else. Well, that raises another puzzle. Oh, if music is mostly non-representational, you know, how can it, why, why is, it moves us incredibly. It arouses such emotions in us. But how could it do that? Look, when you have a, a novel, you get sad and happy because of the world that's represented. You respond to that. But if music doesn't represent anything... How, how come it moves us so much? It's just sound. Well, that's a good question because music was the first art that people recognized as not essentially representational. And then people thought visual art was, but then artists showed them wrong by producing a whole century of non-visual art. But frankly, that non-visual so art... So-called art. Yeah. <laughs> that that non-representational non visual art does not, for most people, connect as directly to the emotions as music does. You have to learn to appreciate non-visual art. You, I mean, everybody loves some kind of music. Most you have to learn to appreciate what people call the better music. It all connects to our emotions, but how and why? Now, here's a question about that. I mean, a sad piece of music causes us, most of us anyway, to feel sad. It's kind of a universal response. Now, now why is that? Is that because there's something in the music, like the sadness is in the music? Or is it just in our responses? But if it's just in our responses, why do we all respond the same way? Well, this is uh, makes... The, the emotional features of music sound like what philosophers call secondary qualities, which isn't exactly an explanation, but it's a category. A secondary quality is something that isn't really in the thing that you attribute the quality to, but at least has a lot to do with the response that thing causes in you. So, so philosophers say colors are really secondary qualities, 
because they have to do with the visual sensations they arouse in us. So is 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 that the connection of of music to the emotions? The emotions are like secondary I don't, I don't qualities. Think so. I don't think so. I think that there's something inside the music, some internal musical properties that kind of demands a certain kind of emotional response. Because look, think about it. If you change the chord just a little bit, it goes from being happy to sad. If you change it from major to minor, it goes from being you know upbeat to downbeat. So there's something about the music, and you know, no music is really catchy. It just it's infectious. In this, its ability to do this to us and to help us examine what happens when music just appears out of nowhere and refuses to leave you alone, we turn to Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, after centuries of singing in the shower, opera attending, fiddle playing, dancing, and yodeling, there's still disagreement about what music is exactly. As John Cage put it, there is no noise, only sound. If it's all just sound, though, why do some songs get stuck in our heads? The Germans have a name for this, of course, Ohrwurm. In English, that's earworm. James Calaris, a professor of marketing at the University of Cincinnati, popularized the term. In 2003, he wrote that 74% of earworms are songs with lyrics, followed by commercial jingles, 15%, and instrumentals at 11%. Earworm episodes last a couple of hours on average and occur frequently among 61.5% of his sample. He also discovered that women are more irritated by earworms than men are, and almost everybody has had an earworm at some time or other. Sing along if you know it. Google earworm, and you will find scores of sufferers. Among earworms mentioned are these. Not to mention... We will, we will rock you. It's hard work getting these out of your head. Well, nigh impossible. And there are these... How about this head stopper? And of course, it's a small world after all. One poor fellow had the lonely goat herd from Sound of Music stuck in his head. Another one had just one line from a song stuck in his head and couldn't remember the rest of it or what band had done it. And there's a woman who had Pink's Get This Party Started stuck on her head, only for some reason she was hearing it as Get This Starty Parted. That's just weird. Did I mention? There it is. Stuck in the middle with you. Of your head. Don't forget. Can you remove these earworms? How? Well, there's the lobotomy. Don't worry, be happy now. Some suggest singing the earworm all the way through deliberately. Supposedly that gets it out of your system. In my case, that wouldn't have worked because the only part of my earworm I could remember was... And I was damned if I was going to rent a copy of Grease just so I could sing along with a song that I hate. Others recommend singing other songs. Earworm sufferers say that Viva Las Vegas and Hava Nagila drive songs out of your head in a jiffy. Me, I finally got rid of my earworm by singing Go Down Moses in a booming baritone. Just goes to show there's a cure for everything if you know where on earth to look for it. Luckily for us, it's a small, small world. I gotta go. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.